0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
1: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promot rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence from the Economist. In New York,
0: I'm John Fastman, and in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
2: As humans live longer and healthier lives, there's been a boom in the number of grandparents in the world. And with people opting to have fewer children, there's more grandparenting to go around for each. We look at what that means for families.
0: And an increasing amount of America's political turmoil in recent years has involved its far-right groups, They once had a sharp focus only on racial hatred. But some new data reveal a different fixation to whip up unrest. LGBT people. First up, though.
2: Last week, a surprise announcement in New Zealand marked the end of a storied political career.
3: This summer, I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that.
2: In a tearful goodbye, Jacinda Ardern stepped down as the country's leader.
3: And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And that my term as prime minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February
2: few saw the departure coming, and Ardern is leaving her job at a tough time for her party. High inflation, a stumbling economy, and a lack of affordable housing are contributing to a gloomy political atmosphere.
4: I take on this job at a challenging time for New Zealanders. COVID-19 and the global pandemic created a health crisis, and now it's created an economic one. And that's where my government's focus will be.
2: Yesterday, the Labour Party confirmed Chris Hipkins as its new leader. He'll take over as Prime Minister on Wednesday, nine months out from an election in October. He'll hope to recapture some of the star power of his predecessor,
4: who may prove a hard act to follow. Jacinda Ardern is a professional politician. She hasn't done anything else except politics, and she's crammed a lot of politics into a still relatively short career. James Astill is our Asia editor. She was an MP by the time she was in her mid-20s. She became the deputy leader of the Labour Party, the centre-left party in New Zealand in 2017, and very shortly after that, the leader and then the leader of a minority government as prime minister. So she's been prime minister of New Zealand for five years, and it's been a very eventful five years. So let's discuss that. Tell us about her tenure in office. Her tenure in office is punctuated by some big events. Not long after she became prime minister, terrible Islamophobic terrorist attack in Christchurch, in which 51 people were killed. And she sort of rose to that tragic occasion in a way that gave her not only a lot of support in New Zealand, but made her a global figure. And she followed that up the following year after the pandemic struck by being a very sympathetic and decisive face of public policy in New Zealand at a time when all the world was wrestling with the same questions, of locking down, leaving open the economies, following public health guidance to the letter or not. And she very, very definitely sticking to the public health Guidance became a sort of poster child of that view of a public policy response to the pandemic. And she was a global figure as a result of that and hugely popular in New Zealand. Uh, Won a majority in 2020, which is an extraordinary feat in a proportional representation system where smaller parties mop up a share of the vote. So she was enormously successful internationally and domestically. That popularity, especially in New Zealand, has been ebbing of late as the sort of economic aftershocks of the pandemic and of, indeed, her particularly stringent approach to following public health guidelines, locking down the economy, have taken their toll. But it's been a remarkable five-year spell, and the fact that the Prime Minister of New Zealand has been as globally recognized as she has been is in and of itself something extraordinarily noteworthy. I think that's
2: exactly right. Most people would struggle to name another New Zealand leader. What was it, do you
4: think, aside from her pandemic response, that struck such a chord with so many people? Well, no doubt her youth, the fact that she was a woman and there's a great human backstory to her premiership. She was the second woman to give birth in office after Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. And she seemed, I think, to justify that sort of soft focus, coverage of her premiership by speaking in this very sympathetic, authentic way. She spoke the language of sympathy and love and respect and honesty And people responded to that very well. I mean, globally, too, we should acknowledge that she rose to prominence at a time when the Western world was extremely concerned about the rise of populist leaders, Donald Trump in 2016 in America, Boris Johnson, a populist of a different kind, but a populist nonetheless in the UK not long afterwards. And she seemed like a sort of antidote to that brand of Politics. And I think that internationally, that's still her reputation if her star may have waned a bit in New Zealand.
2: And even with those accomplishments and that popularity and that global profile, she stepped down. Why? What went wrong?
4: Well, if we take her at her word, she's just drained by the physical and mental effort of running the country at this eventful time and at the same time trying to maintain some sort of work life balance. She's the mother of a young child and being an attentive mother to that child is part of her commitment and indeed part of her politics almost. But it's also true and clearly relevant that her political fortunes have taken a deep dive. She was last month rated positively by less than 30% of New Zealanders. There's an election due in October, which her party is not expected to win. And so she's leaving when her Reputation is still very strong internationally, but her political prospects are rather weak in New Zealand. And it's reasonable to suppose that that, as well as the sort of the terrible toll that the job is taking on her as a mother of a young child is also part of her reasoning.
2: And yesterday, her successor as head of the Labour Party and therefore as prime minister was chosen. He'll be sworn in on Wednesday. What can you tell us about Chris Hipkins?
4: So Chris Hipkins is, first of all, a great ally of Jacinda Ardern's and uh, functionary of her government. As I take on this role, I want to acknowledge our outgoing Prime Minister, my very good friend Jacinda Ardern. She's been one of New Zealand's great Prime Ministers. Jacinda provided inspirational leadership. He was the COVID response minister, so absolutely associated with policies of hers that have helped make her unpopular. So we don't expect a great change of tack from Hipkin's administration. In style, in persona, he's a different kind of politician, also a professional politician. He's been in politics throughout his career, but he's sort of lower key. He's respected by his peers as an efficient administrator. He is said to have a sort of low key humorous political style, but he just sort of takes the star power out of the office. And I suppose it's reasonable to think that that star power was irritating New Zealanders as they start to worry far more about bread and butter issues, high inflation, uncertain economy, than take pride in Jacinda Ardern's globally starry reputation. And James, you mentioned
2: that her party may face trouble in October's elections. Do you think Chris Hipkins has
4: a chance at reviving Labor's fortunes? Well, new leaders get a bounce. Maybe the economy will prove a little stronger, as Asian economies are currently proving to be, than was expected at the end of last year. He needs that kind of good luck, frankly, because the National Party, his center-right opponent, has been polling strongly, and he'll need some sort of political reversal of fortune to win the election in October. And James, before becoming Asia editor, you
2: spent seven years in Washington, the end of the Obama administration and the entirety of the Trump administration, which means you saw Barack Obama forced out of office by law and Donald Trump desperately try to cling to the presidency. Are there lessons, do you think, for other world leaders
4: in the graceful resignation of Jacinda Ardern? I would be cautious in finding such lessons. Top dog politicians are hungry for the fray, always hopeful that poor polling will turn out to be a better electoral performance for their party and power will once again be in their grasp. They just don't give up in the way that she appears to be doing. On the one hand, we can say that she seems to be an unusual politician. She was considered a rather reluctant leader of her party when she took over and 2017. She's always had that hinterland which she's emphasized, her love of family, her responsibility to her young daughter. But for this to be a lesson for other politicians, it has to turn out well for Jacinda Ardern. And I don't think it really will. If her party does badly, as it seems it's likely to, if we go on the polls, she will be seen to have cut and run, to have left while the going was relatively good and bequeathed a defeat to her party in a hospital pass and rugby parlance that New Zealanders would understand to her successor, just giving a Hipkins an election that he can't win the briefest premiership. So I don't think I would rush to draw grand lessons that I think other leading politicians would take from her example. It's safe to say that her sort of empathetic, to use the political cliche, authentic way of speaking to New Zealanders and the world made her extraordinarily successful. And I think that her premiership, therefore, has political lessons, if not necessarily its conclusion. All right, James, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, John.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Hmm. A
0: friend of mine told me one time, she said, when you have a grandbaby, you're going to love that child so much, you're going to love them more than you love your own kids. I said, girl, you're crazy. There's no way I could love a child more than my own. I'm going to tell you something. Grandchildren are heaven-dropped blessings. If there's one thing that grandparents are known for, it's spoiling their grandchildren. They should be able to come and eat ice cream on the weekends when they want, whatever, and you don't have to fuss. Katie Clark in Louisiana has an abundance of fierce love for hers. And on the matter of abundance, she's also part of a growing demographic trend, a steep rise in the global number of grandparents. But besides increased ice cream consumption, what effects does that rise have? It's a question that a team of our correspondents has been looking into.
3: This story started with the numbers. We wanted to know how many grandparents there were in the world.
0: Sarah Burke is The Economist Mexico City Bureau Chief.
3: The story evolved to look at what do grandparents do today and what impact does that have on their children, their grandchildren, and themselves, and indeed society at large.
0: So if that's different now, what are the demographic changes behind it?
3: There are two key changes driving this. Global life expectancy has risen and families are shrinking, so women are having fewer children. Weirdly, no data existed on the number of grandparents globally. So we asked Diego Alboraz Gutierrez of the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research to crunch some numbers using population stats and models and kinship structures in different countries and areas of the world. So this obviously differs greatly between countries, but we found there are an estimated 1.5 billion grandparents alive right now, up from 0.6 billion in 1960. And as a share of population, they have risen too, to now around a fifth. They also have fewer grandchildren per grandparent as an average. And these trends are set to continue.
0: So pretty significant changes over comparatively short timelines. How do you go about finding out what that means on the ground in people's lives?
3: So it wasn't just me reporting this. We sent out our foreign correspondents around the world to look at the situation, not only by reading the studies, but talking to grandparents and families themselves about how they live. So Senegal, China, Sweden, the US, me here in Mexico, we did some on the ground reporting in all of these places.
0: So you say, of course, that it's a different story in different countries. What do those different stories look like?
3: In countries where you have high birth rates still, such as Senegal, you see people having far more grandchildren. So our correspondent spoke with an 84-year-old woman called Amy Diallo. And she struggled to remember how many grandkids she had. She
1: in in
5: a from here. So,
3: After like, a bit of back and forth, okay. she thought it was thank a... Thank about 30.
5: She's got 30 grandkids.
3: That's it. And she looks after them. She's surrounded by them, but not in the same way as in other places. You know, you can't take care of 30 grandchildren. Fertility has fallen much further in Mexico than in Senegal. And so a Mexican woman now has around two children on average, down from seven in 1960. And this means Mexican grandmothers really are spending a lot more time with their grandchildren.
5: I have uh, one son that is two years. And
3: in Sweden, and- heard from another mother, Sandra Kastas, who has one child. And because the benefits in Sweden are so good for parents, she relies very little on her own parents. My parents see my son about two to three weeks in total per year during summers and Christmas and maybe Easter.
0: But even if the raw numbers are are different across countries, surely there are some similarities in the experience here.
3: I mean, it differs greatly between countries, but we found that grandparents are spending more time with grandchildren, especially providing flexible and cheap childcare. I mean, that's not the case in some rich countries, but for the most part, this seems to be what's happening. So in Senegal, Amy Diallo had never worked outside the home, but she helped her kids have that opportunity by caring for two of her son's children so he could go abroad and work and earn money for the family. family. It also allowed one of her daughters to enter the workforce and take an office job despite her having eight children herself.
5: There are a few of them who grow up, but mainly it's usually the babies. Mm.
3: In China, we heard about how government policy around internal migration means rural children cannot go to public school in cities where their parents often move to to work. So they're left behind and cared for solely by the grandparents. And then in Mexico, we see grandparents or grandma in particular is the biggest provider of non-parental care for young children. That was also boosted by the pandemic because nurseries closed here for a, a very long time, almost two years. So this was very obvious in the families I visited, where grandma was very involved with care.
0: And so what effects do all of these changes in in roles and demographics actually have on families?
3: Well, again, it obviously varies by country. But one thing that seems to hold across all of them is it really helps women into the workforce, you know, women with children, especially young children. So the Inter-American Development Bank tried to estimate the impact of this on Mexico And grandmothers, when they died, who were helping with childcare for their daughters, uh, reduced by 27% or 12 percentage points the chance that the daughter was in the labour force. And it reduced her earnings by a whopping 53%. Now, there was no effect on the employment rate of fathers And similar things were found in the United States of America, living within 25 miles of a grandmother, raised the labor force participation rate for married women with small children by four to 10 percentage points, and it had no effect for childless women. So grandmas are really helping this unfinished revolution of getting women into paid work.
0: We've spent a lot of time talking about the effects of all this on parents. What about the effects on grandparents themselves or the grandchildren?
3: So overall, it seems pretty great for the grandchildren, especially in poor countries. A study in rural Gambia found that the presence of a maternal grandmother increased the child's chance of living to the age of two. In sub-Saharan Africa, there are also increased odds of being in school for grandchildren if their grandmother or grandfather in some cases is around. In richer countries, there are less good studies and obviously early survival is pretty good there anyway. But we definitely see that there's no harm. A child who goes to nursery versus being looked after grandma, the outcomes are the same in terms of educational achievement, as far as we know. As for the grandparents themselves, it seems to depend on the dose. As any parent will also know, having a little bit of kids around is nice. It can help older people not feel lonely. But too much, and it can stop them doing things they enjoy in their retirement, such as hiking and biking or whatever it might be.
0: So, Broadly, the the forces behind all of this—more grandparents, more grandparenting—all sounds to be to the good.
3: I mean, it is—it's very good. But you know, there are some downsides and some costs to this as well. We found studies that showed that families don't move for better job opportunities if they're worried about being too far from grandma and her childcare. There's also a worry among researchers that grandma might be retiring early to look after her grandkids. And that obviously means that the gender gap may get better early on for these younger women who can now go into the workforce, but then might get worse again at a later age because it's almost always grandma, not grandpa, who's looking after the kids. I mean, there are lots of things the studies don't show. Families we talked to talked about the benefits of grandma passing down stories, songs, family history. So for the most part, having more grandparents around and doing more is good for everyone.
0: Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. In a riot. Five to
2: 50 a one trying to breach Two cow.
0: years ago, an indelible memory was formed as supporters of defeated President Donald Trump stormed America's Capitol building. The insurrectionists were in large part from America's gaggle of extreme right groups who believed Mr. Trump's lie that the election had been stolen from him. But that was just the principal preoccupation at the time for the far-right, which it seems has a habit of shifting its focus. These days, it's a different issue motivating them to take to the streets.
5: So after January 6th, 2021, when supporters of Donald Trump stormed the Capitol building in D.C., a lot of far-right groups actually went underground.
0: Aaron Braun is The Economist's West Coast correspondent.
5: There was a really robust response from law enforcement in tracking them down, and there was a lot of media scrutiny, so they kind of suspended their activities. But a group that tracks political violence suggests that these far-right groups are mobilizing again, but in very different ways. And the chief example of that is that protests and events against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people or LGBT Americans are on the rise
0: So what exactly did this study look into and find?
5: So the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which is better known as ACLED, began to collect data on the United States in 2020. And since then, this recent report has tallied events between the start of that year and the end of 2022. And they looked at all kinds of organizing by far-right groups, which includes groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters. And their activities include everything from actual protests to recruiting events to training to disseminating propaganda and then actual acts of violence. And ACLED found that protests against LGBT Americans more than tripled in 2022. They accounted for about two thirds of all far right events in December. And they've become actually the second biggest driver of protests among far-right groups. And not only that, but this hatred against LGBT Americans among far-right groups is spreading. Far-right groups only protested against LGBT Americans in about six states in 2021, but 18 in 2022.
0: Which is surprising because so much far-right activity has centered in the past on racial hatred.
5: Yeah, the way that I think about the results of this report is kind of a window into how the culture wars are changing. So racial hatred is still actually the biggest driver of far-right groups. A belief in white supremacy or white nationalism was the most popular driver in 2022. About 21 percent of demonstrations last year were inspired by white nationalism, up from 15 percent the previous year. So that's still more than the protests we've seen against LGBT people, but it's kind of the rapid growth against LGBT people that is concerning. And just one example of the way that white nationalism or even the backlash to racial justice comes into these protests is if you think about the protests in 2020, After George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, a lot of Americans took to the streets to protest for racial justice and against police brutality. And many far right groups formed their own protests protesting the protests.
0: And you mentioned the attack on the Capitol, which was clearly partly driven by these kinds of far right groups.
5: So if you think of these protests as a timeline of the culture wars after the anti-Black Lives Matter protests wound down and in the run up to the 2020 presidential election, we saw a lot of pro-Trump activity and then stop the steal events, which was Trump's rallying cry against what he viewed to be a fraudulent election. And then we saw a lot of Actually, very dispersed, separate far-right groups band together against COVID-19 vaccines and public health restrictions in 2021 once the vaccines started to be rolled out in America. Then we saw a lot of anti-abortion sentiment after somebody leaked a draft opinion of the Supreme Court suggesting that they might overturn Roe v. Wade. And then we see this rapid rise in anti-LGBT events towards the end of 2022.
0: And you said that there was a a, a greater geographical spread as well. So as much as there is a moving with the times and raising the most hell possible, there is a a, a greater amount of it all told?
1: The
5: geographic boundaries of their activity is growing. But the number of events that these far-right groups are putting on has actually stayed roughly the same from 2021 to 2022. There was a modest increase And the number of groups organizing these events is actually shrinking also. Far-right activists are kind of coalescing around a few big groups like the Proud Boys, like the Patriot Front, which is a white supremacist group, and the anti-Semitic Goyam Defense League. So we're seeing this centralization of activity around a few big groups. I think the thing that people are worried about and seeing more people active in fewer groups is that for a very long time the far right was this decentralized network of groups that oftentimes didn't talk to each other at all and now with social media and various new platforms they're cross-pollinating and so the worry is that this could potentially make them more dangerous or at least louder.
0: Erin thanks very much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me Jason.